Let's turn in the Bible together to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 
As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, who changes hearts and opens ears. Lord, we present ourselves here before you. We've gathered in your holy name. And Father, we turn now to the holy scriptures and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the the words of truth. And Father, we pray and I pray that you would help us this morning as we wrestle with this text, as we seek to understand the teaching of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would confirm us where we're understanding rightly, and you would shake us and change us where we're understanding wrongly. And Lord, we know that it's the truth that that sets us free, and that it honors and glorifies you when we have joy in the truth and not joy in some lie. And so, Lord, I ask for your help this morning. And I thank you that you are with us and that this is your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at one of the more controversial teachings of Jesus contained in the scripture. And that is his teaching on the ability or inability of people to come to him. To put it another way, his teaching on why people do or do not believe. Have you ever wondered about that? Has that ever been a question that has entered your mind? Why is it that some people believe and other people don't believe? I know that's a question that I've wrestled with for a long time. And I'd like to emphasize that this controversial teaching is a teaching of Jesus's. This isn't a teaching of Eli or a teaching of some theologian, but what's so controversial, uh, the, the controversy is due to his words here that we find in the Gospel of John chapter 6. And we know that Jesus's words are known for rattling people's feathers, right? His words are known for causing controversy. It's sad, but this teaching has caused no small division in the Christian church. Real Christians disagree about what Jesus means here when he teaches about why people do or do not come to believe in him. Real Christians disagree on this. And I want to make it very clear at the beginning of this message that being a Christian does not depend on what side you take on this issue. Amen? So you can take a different side on this issue, and that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Real Christians disagree on this. 
That doesn't mean, however, that what we believe about this doesn't have real repercussions. And so it's, it's not an important thing. But it doesn't make, it, it's not a requirement for being a Christian. And here at All Saints Church, there's no requirement at All Saints Church that says you must hold a particular view on this controversial teaching of Jesus. We differ, and that's okay. There's lots of different people in this congregation, Christian brothers and sisters, who will differ on this teaching, and that's fine. We are all saints if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what unites us is our faith in him, our understanding of salvation in his blood and faith in him. Amen? But that doesn't mean that as a pastor, I won't seek to teach the Bible as best as I can and seek to steer and guide us as a congregation in the way that I believe is true. And in fact, I take that as the primary responsibility that I have as a pastor is to teach the Bible. So even though we all have the freedom to disagree on this subject, I will teach this as best as I can. So this morning, I hope to do just that, and I'd like to present my observations on this passage and preach what I believe Jesus is saying and what I believe Jesus is meaning. You don't have to agree with me. If at the end of this sermon you say, Eli, I disagree, that's totally fine, and I even invite you to tell me that and Tell me why you disagree with me and why you think I've missed something. But I do ask you this morning to give me your ear, to honestly weigh what I say, and to ask yourself not how do I feel about this, but what do the scriptures say? That's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Now, I believe what I believe regarding this teaching because I feel compelled by the scripture to believe it. Full disclosure here. The reason why I hold the view that I do is because I'm simply convinced that is what the scriptures teach. And I've wrestled with this for a long time. I don't deny that it's difficult. It's a difficult teaching and hard to understand. There's so much that could be said. And so please don't think that in this sermon, I've said everything that could be said. I'm going to probably just scratch the top of the iceberg. The Bible says that we see through a glass dimly. I recognize that we don't have perfect knowledge in these matters. Amen? And so we see some things through a dark glass, and we're, we're doing the best we can to understand. But even though I believe this because I'm compelled, I feel compelled by Scripture to believe it, I also want you to know this morning that I've discovered, or I feel that the teaching of Jesus here, as I understand it, is a beautiful teaching, okay? Now, I don't believe it because it's beautiful merely, but I do see beauty in it as well, and I'd like this morning, my hope is to also point out that beauty. There's beauty here. So, I've divided the sermon up into two sections. Number one, the first section, and this will be the bulk of the sermon this morning, 95%. I'd like to simply exegete the passage. Now, what do I mean by exegete? The word exegesis just means showing what is there. That's my attempt. Now, you can judge whether I succeed at this or not, but all I want to do is point out what is there. Exegesis is just, look what's there. You know, let's, let's not put our own thoughts into it, but let's just see what really is here. Not inserting our own, do- own ideas, 
but drawing out what Jesus has said. So that's the bulk of this. We're just going to go through the text and exegete it. And then lastly, I'd, I will close very briefly with some reflections on, the, on what I think is the beauty of this teaching, why I think this teaching is beautiful. So let's begin with the exegesis of the passage. It's important that we first notice that this teaching of Jesus on why people do or do not believe in him occurs right in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse, right? Now, we've seen the context of the Bread of Life discourse. Huge crowds are following Jesus. He's super popular. But Jesus, the Bible tells us, knows the hearts of all men, right? Remember that in John chapter 2? That was another instance where huge crowds were following him, and it said Jesus wasn't excited about that, right? That didn't impress him. He didn't commit himself to these crowds because why? It wasn't his time? No, because he knows the heart of all men. He knows what's in man. And so Jesus is not impressed by the popularity because he knows what's going on in human hearts. And he intentionally seeks to end their fantasy, right? They have a fantasy. They think he's the Messiah. They're right about that. They think he's the kind of Messiah that we're looking for. He's going to do what we we think he should do. And Jesus seeks to end that fantasy by confronting this crowd with the truth of who he really is. Amen? He wants to show them who he is. He knows that's going to cause many to stumble. But he goes with that anyway. He begins to confront the crowd first by feeding over 5,000 people and then proceeding to teach them that he is the real bread of life. And many, in fact, do stumble. And we see this at the conclusion. Actually, we see it throughout the Bread of Life Discourse. Throughout the Bread of Life Discourse, from the very beginning, they're struggling with it. They're grumbling about it. They don't understand. And at the end of the Bread of Life Discourse, the crowds are gone and they dissipate. Even the disciples seem a little rattled. And you've got to remember, the disciples even don't understand that Jesus needs to die. A little bit later, Peter's rebuking Jesus at the idea of him dying, right? And so it must have been hard for the disciples themselves, the inner, the inner 12, to see all those crowds that they were probably pretty excited about going away and feeling like, I can't really blame them for going away, right? It's kind of crazy what he's saying, but we're not leaving because we know he's the Holy One of God. Now, brothers and sisters, it's in light of the crowd's unbelief that Jesus gave this teaching about the ability and inability of people to come to him. It's in light of the crowd's unbelief. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So Jesus is totally aware of the fact they're not believing in him. And in light of this, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. It's in light of their unbelief. And look look with me again at verse 64. Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, notice, very important, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So he's saying, for this reason, I said what I said. 
the fact that you're not believing in me, I said this, in light of your unbelief. Now, why is it important to notice that this controversial teaching occurs in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse and in the light of unbelief? And here's why it's important, and I'd like you to remember this point all throughout the sermon and when the sermon's over and when you go home and for the next 10 years, remember this point. And that is this. Whatever Jesus' controversial teaching means, okay, whatever side we take on this matter, whatever he's saying, in no way alters the fact that Jesus is the bread of life who came to give his life for the world and summons all people to believe. And it's in light of their rejection of him and their rejection of him as the bread of life that he gives this teaching. In other words, Jesus in this teaching, this controversial teaching, is not, is not talking about who is invited, okay? Does that make sense? This teaching is not about who does God invite to give the bread of life to or to receive the bread of life. The teaching is all about who responds to the invitation. The bread of life has been given for the whole world and the whole world is commanded to believe and receive this bread of life. So there's no doubt about that here. Jesus gives the teaching in the light of their unbelief. You're not coming. You're supposed to come. You're supposed to believe. The food has been set for you. The life is there for you. If you don't believe, you'll die. If you do believe, you'll live. But you're not believing. You're not responding to this invitation. So please remember that whatever we believe about this teaching, it doesn't change the fact that God loves you, that God loves the whole world, that Christ died for you, that Christ died for the whole world, and that God invites you, commands you, and commands the whole world to believe, and whoever believes will be saved. Amen? But the sad reality is not all believe. It's there. Jesus has come. They're invited, they're commanded to believe, and they don't. And Jesus is now commenting on this fact, the fact that people don't come. Look with me at verse 37. And verse 37 and verse through to verse 40 are meant to be read together, understood together. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I'd like to start by making two crucial observations. Number one, in light of the people's unbelief, it doesn't seem like Jesus is thinking that unbelief is unusual. Okay? Here's what he's saying. You don't believe. In light of this, I am going to tell you something. All that, the, all that the Father gives to me will come. So it doesn't seem like Jesus thinks unbelief is unusual, even mass unbelief. Crowds leave him. Crowds don't believe in him. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come. He's not surprised by this, right? He's not like, where are you all going? Oh my goodness, why don't you believe? He says, you don't believe me. All that the Father gives me will believe. So he's not shaken by their unbelief. He's not like, this is not, this is not working. This is, something's wrong. 
And I think that's a powerful, important lesson for us today. If we truly grasp Jesus' teaching, then we ourselves won't be shocked by mass unbelief in Christ, right? Because we might think, well, if Jesus really is the Son of God, the truth, there's all this evidence, there's all this power here, why do so little believe? Ah, all that the Father gives will come. Unbelief is not unusual. And here's the second crucial observation I will make. Even in the light of unbelief, even in the light of mass unbelief, Jesus here is stating his confidence that people will come to him. Amen? The crowds are leaving him. And he says, people are coming. Right? (laughs) He's confident that people will come to him. He doesn't seem to be afraid that no one will come. Amen? He doesn't seem to be afraid about that. Their unbelief isn't unusual, but I'm also confident people will come. And why is Jesus confident? Here's the ultimate, here's the question. And it is, as we see in this passage, because Jesus knows that it is the will of God that people come to him. In fact, not only that some people come to him, but if you look at the Bible as a whole, Jesus is confident and knows that it is the will of God that an innumerable multitude from every nation will come to him. He knows this, doesn't he? Do you think Jesus, when all this crowd is going away, is thinking, who's going to come? He knows in the end there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation. You can't even count them. Amen? And not not only does Jesus know that it's the will of God that multitudes will come to him, it is the will of God, according to this passage, that those that come to him will not be lost and that he will raise them up on the last day, right? He's confident this is going to happen. Jesus, do you think he thinks no one will be raised on the last day? Jesus knows tons of people are going to be raised on the last day because it is the will of God. Not because it is God's good wish, but because it is God's inviolable plan for people to come to him, to not be lost, and to be raised. Who are these people who come to him? Who are these people, according to verse 40, that see him and believe, as opposed to verse 36, people who see him and don't believe? Do you notice the contrast there? In verse 36, people see him and don't believe. In verse 40, people see him and do believe. Who are these people who see him and believe? And the answer is those who are given by the Father to Christ. Brothers and sisters, I believe Jesus' confidence that people will come to him does not lie in people. In other words, he's not saying, I know, okay, you're all leaving me. Huge crowds are leaving me. But I know out there that there are good-hearted people. I know out there, you guys are rebels, you guys are wicked, you guys are blind, you guys are... But I know out there there are people who are good in their hearts and who will listen. Rather, I, I see Jesus saying here, but I know the Father. Amen? And his confidence is not in people but it's in the Father who gives those people to him. 
So there's, it seems like there's a chain link here that can't be broken. There's these links on the chain. First of all, all that are given will come to him. All that come to him will be preserved and not lost. And all that are preserved and not lost will be raised on the last day. So in other words, the end result is them being raised on the last day. And the beginning of that process is the Father giving these people to the Son. Who does the raising? God. Who does the preserving, according to this passage? Verse 39. That I lose nothing, right? Christ does the preserving. And who does the coming? We do. But why do we do the coming, according to Jesus? Because it is given. In other words, I believe what Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, is that salvation is of the Lord. That's what I believe Jesus is saying. That the salvation of sinners depends upon God. And in fact, we can even go further than that and say, I believe what Jesus is saying is that the salvation of sinners depends upon the mutual love between the Father and the Son. The salvation of sinners depends upon the mutual love between the Father and the Son. Theologian Thaddeus Williams comments on this mutual love. I quote, The father-son relationship is not passive and complacent, but active and expressive. How, how many know that the father loves the son? Amen? And the son loves the father. And Thaddeus here is saying, that's just not passive and complacent love. They don't just sit back for all of eternity and say, I love you, I love you too. I love you, I love you too, you know? But they do something about that love. The act of obeying is the primary medium of the son expressing love for his father. Whereas the act of giving recurs as the dominant medium of the father expressing love for his son. And Jesus says this in many places. Because the Father loves the Son, he gives him many things. And because the Son loves the Father, he accomplishes his will in obedience. The Father gives to the Son all that will come to him, and the Son accomplishes the Father's will by not losing any of them, and by giving them eternal life, and by raising them on the last day. Turn with me to John chapter 10. And this isn't the only place in the Gospel of John where this relationship between the Father and Son is shown and where Jesus talks about the Father giving people to the Son. It's not the only place. We're not just taking you know, one isolated text here. So look at John 10 with me. And there's lots of verses we could look at here in John 10, but I'll just highlight a few. So John chapter 10, verse 17 Let's go back to verse 14, actually. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now notice in verse 17 the relationship between the Father and the Son. 
For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So the Father and the Son are engaged in a relationship here in which the Father is giving the Son commandments, the Son is obeying the Father, and the Father is loving the Son. Now look at verse 24, and notice the similarity with this passage and the one in John chapter 6. In verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus saying, it is plain. You've got enough evidence here. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. So you don't believe. Jesus is recognizing their unbelief. Now notice, in the light of their unbelief, he's going to make a very similar comment about the ability and inability of people to come to him. Verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That sounds a lot like John 6. And who are these sheep? Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus here says, The Father has given the sheep to me. He's entrusted them to me, and I will preserve them and keep them and give them eternal life. Turn with me to John chapter 17. This is a very climactic moment in the Gospel of John. This is right before the crucifixion, and Jesus is praying to the Father. I want you to notice in this prayer the relationship between the Father and the Son and also the element of giving, of the Father giving people to his Son is found here as well. John chapter 17. Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Do you notice the relationship between the Father and the Son? It seems like because the Son loves the Father, he wants the Father to be glorified, that one of the chief purposes of Jesus coming into the world was to glorify the Father, amen? It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like, hey, you know, I came into the world to save sinners, but I think this will bring God glory. It's a good secondary idea. And the Father wants to glorify the Son too, amen? And I don't think the Father sent the Son saying, go save sinners, and then later was like, you know, I could probably glorify the Son in this as well. But he intends to glorify the Son by sending him into the world to save sinners. There's something going on here in their relationship. Verse 6 is very important. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, 
and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And we could read on, because Jesus is going to go on to talk about preserving them. I have kept them. I have, you preserve them now as I leave. But the element of the relationship between the Father and the Son is here, and the element of God giving people to his Son is also here. So no, this is not some obscure, weird thought kind of being extracted out of the gospel, out of John chapter 6. This is something that seems to run through the gospel of John, and there's even other places we could go in the gospel of John and even outside the gospel of John as well. Turn with me back to John chapter 6. All of this seems to go right over the crowd's head. And I think today all of this goes over many people's heads as well. I want you to notice how the crowd responds in verse 41 and 42 when Jesus says this about the Father giving people to, his, to, his, to him. They seem to miss the point in verse 41. The Jews were grumbling like the ancient Israelites. Same spirit, same character, same blindness, grumbling. They're grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. So now they're grumbling about what he said in verse 35. Remember, Jesus says, the bread of God is that which comes out of heaven. And then he says, I'm the bread of life. And they're saying, what? What do you mean you came out of heaven? Verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say he came out of heaven? So they kind of missed, at this point, their mind isn't kind of, they're not grumbling about what he said about the father giving the son. They're not, they're not grumbling about the inability of them to come at this point. Just, what do you mean you came out of heaven? The irony here is that they don't really know his father, right? Like, we know your father. The irony is that they don't, and the, and the second irony is that Jesus knows their father, right? In John chapter 8, he says, your father's not Abraham, your father's actually the devil, and that's why you don't believe in me. He says, why is it that you don't hear me? Why don't you believe my word? Because you're of your father, the devil. And so here's them accusing Jesus. We know your father. What are you talking about? And he says, I know your father. So it's, what they're saying here is, is ironic. Now look with me at verse 43. It's their unbelief that again prompts Jesus to continue his teaching on why people do and do not come to him. Jesus answers and says, Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 45, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is saying here, I believe, uh, the same thing as what he said in verse 37. He's just saying it in a different way. He's talking about the exact same thing in a little bit of a different way. No man, instead of saying all that the Father gives will come, he says here, no man can come unless the Father draws. He's putting it in the negative instead of in the positive. All that the Father gives will come, implying here in verse 44 and 45, because they'll be drawn, because they'll be taught. What does it mean to be drawn? Verse 45 seems to explain verse 44. So verse 44 is, God must draw you. Verse 45 is, they will all be taught hearing and learning from the Father. 
and we have here Jesus' statement that they will be raised. So there seems to be a chain here. Like in verse 37, a chain that can't be broken. All who are raised are taught. All who are taught are drawn. Whoever is drawn will be raised. So there's that, that chain where you can't have one of these things without the other. If you've got the drawing, you've got the teaching. If you've got the teaching, you've got the resurrection. Jesus is quick to add, of course, in verse 46, that no one knows the Father except through the Son. So what he's saying is here is, even though I'm telling you that in order to even come to me, the Father must draw you and teach you, don't, mis- don't make any mistake. You cannot know the Father except through me. I am the only one who can reveal to you who the Father is, but even so, to come to me, the Father must give it to you and draw you. Now here's the question, and it is the million-dollar one. What does it mean to be taught by the Father? What does it mean to be drawn by the Father? That's the million-dollar question. And here, many people offer an interpretation that gives an alternative sense and an alternative flavor to the passage than the one that I'm giving. And here's this alternative flavor. Here's this interpretation that's offered. The idea that is presented is this. When Jesus says that the Father will draw or that no one can come to him unless the Father draws, the argument goes that Jesus is not talking about the Father drawing particular people. Jesus is talking about a universal drawing. And he's just making the statement that, you know, if, unless, unless the Father drew everybody, no one would come. The Father is drawing everyone. And if he wasn't doing that, there's no way anyone could come to me. But just because the Father is drawing everyone, and just because the Father is attempting to teach everyone the truth that they might come to Jesus, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to come. Only those who respond to his drawing, only those who learn from his teaching and accept his teaching are the ones who come. So they take this passage as a universal drawing and a universal teaching, and those who come are those who respond. The ultimate reason, therefore, why people come to Jesus is not found in God, but it is found in people, okay? in, this, in this interpretation. God's drawing is necessary, it's not sufficient. The ultimate reason why people come is because of the people, not because of the Father. And going back to verse 37, this interpretation also says this about verse 37. When Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come, he's not talking about the Father giving particular people to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come. Don't think that's particular people. Rather, the interpretation goes, what the Father gives to the Son is a particular kind of people, a category of people. So all that the Father gives me are a particular kind of people. What kind of people are we thinking of? Well, people who are weak people who are foolish, people who are base. We think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where 
the Apostle Paul says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound that which is mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world to confound the people who think that there's something so that no flesh may boast in God's presence, right? And so the idea is they're saying, basically when, when God gives to Jesus, he's giving weak, foolish, base people to him. Not particular people, but that kind of people. And what determines who will be in that category? That's the question. Whether a person is in that category of weak, foolish, or base, or whether a person is not, depends not upon God, but upon people. So people either put themselves into that category or they don't. And if they are in that category, they will come to Christ. Weak, foolish, base people come to Christ. By way of example, it'd be like a general going to a lieutenant. And he's saying, Lieutenant, all that I have given you will come to you. And the lieutenant says, Great, how many people have you given me for this mission? And the general says, well, I actually don't know the numbers. I haven't given you particular people, but I have posted a notice and sent out a notice. And I said, this is going to be a really hard mission. The best, the brightest, the strongest report to the lieutenant. And the, and the general knows that he has strong, bright, tough soldiers, and they will report to that lieutenant. And so he says, I've given you my best and my brightest, Right? I, don't, I haven't given you the particular people, but I posted the notice, and believe me, Lieutenant, you'll have my best and brightest. That's the sense of this interpretation. But again, the ultimate reason why people come to Christ is not found in God, but in people. So here are the two views. All that the Father gives, one, my view is, that I've been arguing for this morning, is particular people. The other view says it's a category of people, and people will choose to put themselves into that category or not. All that the Father draws and teaches will come to Christ. And in my view, that's the particular people he will draw and teach. In the other view, it's God draws and teaches everyone. That's necessary. No one will come unless he does that. But it depends on the people to, to, to respond to his drawing and his teaching. One view says ultimately people come because of God and ultimately people come because of people in the other view. I believe that this alternative interpretation flounders upon the rocks of careful exegesis. And I'd like to give four reasons why I believe this alternative interpretation flounders. And I'm sure there's more reasons, but here are four. Number one, this this alternative interpretation locates the confidence that Jesus has, that people will come to him in people rather than in God. So basically when Jesus says, in the light of the crowds leaving, people will come to me, it's because he believes that there are people out there that aren't like those guys that will come. Good-hearted people who will respond, that will put themselves into the category of weak and base, independent of the Father. And it places his confidence in them. You guys won't believe in me, but some and many will believe in me. Some and many will listen to the Father, but not because of the Father, but because of them. They will. 
But brothers and sisters, it just seems to me that that misses the whole sense and the flavor of the passage, that Jesus' confidence that people will come to him seem to me to be in the Father, in the Father's will, in the Father's plan, and in the Father's giving. It seems like that's his confidence, not in people, but in God. And it's for that reason that the unbelief of the crowds isn't unusual. When Jesus sees the crowds going away, he says, that's not strange, the Father's got to draw you. But in this other view, it seems to me that unbelief would be unusual. Mass defection, mass unbelief. And Jesus could be thinking, why are you leaving me? You've got all the reasons to stay. The Father's drawing you. The Father's teaching you. And they're leaving him, in a sense, becomes kind of inexplicable. Why are you leaving? It's your fault that you're leaving. You could stay, but it's your fault. But why? All the reasons are here. It's inexplicable. Why do some come and why do some not come? It's inexplicable. It's unusual why there's mass unbelief. But in the other view, it's not unusual. Why do some come and why do some not? Well, people don't come because they're rebellious and stubborn and like the ancient Israelites, grumbling and they don't have faith in God And they can't come unless the Father gives it unto them. So it's not unusual why they don't come. So the first problem with this is it locates the confidence Jesus has that people will come in people rather than in God. A second problem is this, that as we saw in chapter 17, what the Father gives to the Son is not an abstract category of people, but but concrete people. You remember in John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. It seems like what he's saying is, you gave me men, people, out of the world, and I have manifested my name to those people. And look with me in John chapter 6, verse 65. Jesus says the same thing in a third way. It's even a little different here in verse 65. And notice what he says. And he was saying, for this reason, your unbelief, I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So here, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't refer to the Father giving him, Christ, anything. He says the Father gives people something. Do you notice that in verse 65? Unless it has been granted him, that is, the giving is to the person now. In other words, you can't come to the Son unless the Father gives to you the ability to come. We're not talking about abstract categories or merely giving to Christ, but giving to people the ability to come. In verse 65, I believe Jesus is explaining their unbelief. He's not explaining how these unbelievers can believe in him in verse 65. Do you see the difference there? You're not believing. You're walking away from me. And for that reason that you're not believing, I say no one can come to me unless it's given to that person by the Father. But it seems strange if it, if it were not meaning that. You guys are leaving me. You guys are not believing. But it's given to you to believe. How does that explain their not believing? It doesn't. So he's not explaining how they can believe in him in verse 65, but he's explaining why they're not believing in him in verse 65. Here's the third reason that this alternative interpretation struggles. 
Not everyone in the category of weak, base, and foolish come to Christ. And not everyone in the category of strong, wise in the world's eyes, and noble don't come to Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he doesn't say that everyone who's weak and base will come, but he says, you know, not many people who are strong come, not many who are noble, not many who are wise. He doesn't say nobody. And it seems like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the reason why people come is because God calls people who are weak and who are foolish and who are uh, base. And he calls people, who, some people who are strong and who are noble and who are wise in the world's eyes. But it still depends upon his calling. But I can't think of one category that you could just blanket say, you know, everyone in a weak, base, foolish category comes. That's simply not true. Or everyone who's strong and self-righteous and proud doesn't come. The Apostle Paul was proud and self-righteous, and he came. Because it depends on God and not on people. And my fourth reason that this interpretation, this other interpretation flounders, is that I believe it fails to truly understand the Isaiah quotation and what it means in context. Would you look with me at John chapter 6, verse 45? Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, the 13th verse. Although Jesus, when he says it is written in the prophets, gives the impression that what Isaiah is saying is kind of a theme throughout the prophets. And they shall all be taught of God. The the quote in in the Old Testament is, all of your sons will be taught of God. Now notice that this quotation is not saying, is not just saying you need to be taught of God to come to Christ. It's not making a statement that's going to need to happen for you to come to Christ. It's actually saying, or, or one, one more example, if you come to Christ, it's because you were, you were taught. That's not what this quotation is saying. It's saying they shall be taught. In other words, this is not a prescription. This is a promise. Does that make sense? He's not just making, he's not quoting Isaiah to say, you know, if anyone comes to me, they're going to have to be taught. But he's saying they will be taught. It's a promise. It's something that's going to happen. And the context of Isaiah 54, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the book of Isaiah and Isaiah 54, but it's such an important book. And the context of Isaiah 54 is God saying, Rejoice, barren woman. You remember this at the beginning of Isaiah 54? You who are forsaken and destitute and have no children, because you will have more children than the woman who's married. In other words, in the context of Isaiah, God is going to bless Israel, who was once fruitless and forsaken, with more children than she can possibly handle. That's the context of Isaiah 54. Rejoice, woman. You're going to have so many more children than the woman who was married. And then in the same context, he says, all of your sons, all of your children will be taught of the Lord. So there's a promise here in this chapter that there will be children. 
from a barren woman. That's a miracle, isn't it? How do you have children when you're barren? That's the work of God. That this is going to happen, that Israel will be blessed and have children in abundance, will be a miracle. Throughout the book of Isaiah, Israel and her children are rebellious, right? How does the book of Isaiah begin? God is lamenting over Israel and the children of Israel, and he's saying, I have brought up children, and they have rebelled against me, right? Stupid animals know their master. My children don't know me. So in the context of Isaiah, it starts right out of the gate that your children are rebellious, wicked, they don't understand, they don't know me. In Isaiah chapter 5, very important, Isaiah sings a song about Israel and he says, God planted Israel and he did everything for Israel that he could possibly have done. If he were to let Israel on their own do what they were supposed to do. In other words, he says, I've planted Israel, I've taken out, I've, I've planted them like a vineyard, I've fenced it in, I've taken out all the bad soil, you know, I, I've taken out the rocks, I, I put the watchtower in. I mean, everything is perfectly ideal for these people to, to come to me and to know me and to believe in me. And, and I left them, I've done everything shy of doing it myself. I've given them the perfectly ideal conditions. What more could I do? God says in Isaiah, 5, in Isaiah 5, what more could I do for you? And still, they rebelled against me. So if, it is, if it's up to Israel in ideal conditions, God doing everything for them, but still leaving them the choice and the, the ultimate reason by which they will come to him, they failed. They were rebellious. Two things in the book of Isaiah result from their rebellion. Number one, God judicially punishes Israel for their rebellion. So what does God do in the light of their rebellion against him? He punishes them. And I'd like to point out something very important. That God's punishment upon Israel for their rebellion, according to the book of Isaiah, is not only that he'll send famine and wars upon them, and that is what he did, He sent all sorts of destructive forces upon them because of their rebellion. But it's not only that. But according to the book of Isaiah, he also punishes Israel for their rebellion by prolonging their rebellion. By prolonging their rebellion. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6? And I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 12 because John quotes Isaiah chapter 6. John quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, John is just steeped in Isaiah. He's saturated with this book. And look, at, look with me at John chapter 12, the 37th verse. And notice, the, again, the similarity between this passage and the ones we've been looking at. In light of their unbelief, here's what we read. But though Jesus had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This, their unbelief, 
was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That question is rhetorical, and it's kind of an exasperating question, like, who has believed? Nobody. For this reason, verse 39, they could not believe. What do you mean they could not believe? Well, that's what the scripture says. They could not believe. For, Isaiah said again, this is now quoting Isaiah chapter 6, God has blinded their heart, God has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This is one of the ways God punishes Israel for their rebellion. When human beings rebel against God and sin against God and reject God's word and reject God's counsel, one of the themes of the Bible is that one of the ways God judges us and punishes us is he gives us over to blindness, right? He gives us over to further darkness. He, he cements us in our folly, so that we can't get out of it. And that's what God did to Israel. It's like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We know in the scripture that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened his heart as well. Because Pharaoh was proud and rejected God's word, and God knew he would, by the way, from the beginning, God then cemented him in his unbelief so that he would pour out his wrath upon Pharaoh. And this is what God did with Israel. And that's why Israel couldn't believe when Jesus came, because God cemented them in their own rebellion. Now, I said there's two things the book of Isaiah says that God does in the light of their rebellion. One is he judicially punishes them, as as I've just said, and the other is God promises to them that he will miraculously intervene and save them. That's in the book of Isaiah and all the prophets. Both this Because you're rebellious, I'm going to punish you. And because you're rebellious and you'll never listen to me, I'm going to miraculously intervene and you will listen to me. Right? In fact, in Isaiah 6, when God says he will punish them by blinding their hearts, Isaiah himself, who knows God and who knows God's promises and he knows God's covenant, he says, how long, O Lord? It can't be forever. You won't punish them forever with blindness. You won't punish them with destruction forever because you've promised to bless them. So my question is to you, God, how long? And God gives him a terminus ad quem, an end. It will end. God must supernaturally intervene if Israel is to be saved. And brothers and sisters, according to the prophet and all the prophets, Israel must be saved, will be saved, because God has covenanted and promised to bless them. I'd like to ask you something. Suppose you were to summarize the Old Testament right now. Just summarize the Old Testament. And by that, I don't mean go through the whole, the whole story step-by-step, step, kind of giving the cliff notes, but just summarize the main takeaway points, the main takeaway lessons out of the Old Testament. What is it? What, what's the summary of the Old Testament? You know, two or three points. What is it? And I think for many people, and how would you do that? How would you summarize? What, what would you say? Like, here are the kind of the, the four principles from the Old Testament. How would you do that? I think for many, they would say this. 
Well, the Old Testament, number one, teaches us how sinful humanity is. There's nobody righteous, right? It just cements that. That's the point. Old Testament, uh, God wants you to learn that lesson. Sinful. Uh, Secondly, the Old Testament wants you to know no one will be righteous before God by the law. You know, we're sinful, but if God gives us commandments and rules, that's just not going to work. You see that in Israel's history. And then I think thirdly, people would say, and the Old Testament also wants us to know, God wants us to know that, that he's promised a salvation and a savior, Jesus. And Jesus is prophesied of in the Old Testament. We're unrighteous, we can't be righteous. God's going to bring Jesus and we're going to be righteous if we believe in him. That's all true, but I think we miss a crucial feature of the Old Testament if we stop there. If we stop there. And that crucial feature, these other ones are crucial as well. Here's a fourth crucial, crucial feature. That in the Old Testament, God not only says, I am going to send a sacrificial Messiah, and whoever believes in him will be saved. He does say that. But God also says, in his undeserved, electing love, God will be true to his covenant, and God has promised that people will believe in his son. And he's promised that he will change the heart of Israel so that they will believe and be blessed. So it's not just, I'm going to send a savior whoever believes, but there's a promise throughout the Bible, I'm going to do this and you're going to be saved throughout scripture in the Old Testament. The British Old Testament theologian Norman Snaith in 1944 wrote a book called The Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament. And he writes about many distinctive ideas in the Old Testament. But here's what he says is the chief idea. He says, when I study the Old Testament, here's the one that stands out to me the most. I quote, Wonderful as his love for his covenant people is, his steady persistence in it is more wonderful still. Who can deny, brothers and sisters, that God set his love upon Israel. Would anyone deny that? That he set his love upon Israel? That he blessed them in wonderful ways and took them as his people? But Snaith says, you know, even more wonderful than what he did for Israel is his steady persistence in his love. The most important of all the distinctive ideas of the Old Testament is God's steady and extraordinary persistence in continuing to love wayward Israel in spite of Israel's insistent waywardness. That's a, he says that's the striking feature of the Old Testament. No matter how wicked Israel is, he remains true to his promise and his covenant. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? That when God elected Israel in the Old Testament, it was not only to teach a lesson about how wretched people are, but also to show how faithful and able he is. Amen? His whole point in choosing that nation wasn't just to show how bad people are, but how good he is, and to show another side of his love. Captured in the hymn by George Matheson, O love that will not let me go. Now you might ask, Eli, you're straying from John chapter 6. Have I really strayed from John 6? I'm unpacking the context 
of Isaiah 54, verse 13, which Jesus quotes in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. That's a promise. Israel, you're going to have sons, and they're all going to be taught by me. And in order for him to fulfill this promise, he must supernaturally intervene and draw and teach and give to obstinate, rebellious sinners the ability to come to him. And the prophets tell us about this. A new heart I will give them. A new spirit I will put in them. I will make them fear me and they will not depart from me. This is a mystery. This is for me one of the great mysteries of the Bible that God can effectively change a person's heart without treating them like a puppet and without treating them like a machine. Without circumventing their heart, he can effectually change your heart by his spirit. So that you receive the truth. Well, what is the truth that we receive when our hearts are open? What do we learn when the Father teaches us? Well, we learn the truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. We learn the truth of the bread of life discourse. We learn the truth that Jesus has been preaching to the people that they have been rejecting. Look with me at verse 63. Jesus says, the words that I'm speaking unto you, they are spirit and they are life. If you receive my words, you'll live. These are the words and the truth that we receive when we're taught by the Father. There is no one who's righteous. No one can have life or righteousness by obedience to the law. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And by simply believing in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for your sins, you will be declared righteous by God, forgiven, and have eternal life. But you can't receive that unless you're drawn and taught by the Father to receive that truth. Who has believed our report? Apparently nobody, until God gives it to you and he reveals it to you. John chapter 6 verse 60 is a fascinating verse. I think we too quickly pass over the questions of the heathens. But this is a phenomenal, phenomenal question. In fact, this might be the most important uh, question here in John 6 that gives shape to the rest of this discourse. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? What a question. They are perceiving Who's going to listen to this, right? What you're saying is so contrary, radical, otherworldly, against our own wisdom, crazy sounding, weird, awful. I don't like it. Who do you think is going to hear this? It's a profound question reported in Scripture. I'd like to suggest that man on his own independent of the Father, can't listen. Rebellious man can't receive it. But those whom the Father gives to the Son and effectually draws them and teaches them by His Spirit in His mysterious way, listen 
to the difficult statement. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are one who has heard and learned and listened and believed to the most impossible truth, right? You have effectively agreed that you are an unrighteous, evil, wicked, hell-deserving person. Most people in the world will not accept that. You've also believed that there's no way that any person in this world can be righteous or fixed by trying and by improving. And you've also believed that God in sheer grace gives eternal life to wicked, evil people simply by believing in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. That's something that most people in the world hate to hear, can't hear. And yet you've heard it because if you are a Christian, you are one of the innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that God has given it to believe. And the scripture says that God will not only draw and give to believe Jews, but also Gentiles. And when those Gentiles believe in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they become the children of Israel. They are part of the children where God says, Rejoice, Israel, barren woman. Look at all the children you have from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So if you have understood and believed the gospel, you have been given to Christ. You are the children of Israel, and you are the fulfillment of God's promise to bless Israel even if you were totally unaware of all this. In fact, you probably were unaware of it because nowhere in the scripture does it say you're going to be aware of it. It just happens to you and you know that it's happened to you by its effect. Hey, you're a believer now. Guess what? That was the spirit of God. It wasn't that you were just walking down the street one day and, oh, the spirit of God hit me. But God drew you to Christ and you believed and now he informs you that what, what you have done is a miracle, believing in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, this is, I believe, the teaching of Jesus that we're examining here in John chapter 6, where he teaches why people come to him and why people don't. And I'd like to just close with seven rapid-fire reflections on why I think this teaching is beautiful. Number one, this teaching of Jesus gives us a window into the Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son. So it gives us a window realizing, you know, there's more going on than meets the eye, but there's a relationship between the Father and the Son of love upon which our salvation depends. Secondly, this teaching is beautiful because it shows us that God is a gracious and faithful covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In other words, this teaching shows us the electing and unrelenting side of God's love that we often will miss. He's a covenant-making, promise-giving, promise-keeping God. And that's a side of his love we often miss. It's beautiful. Number three, this teaching means that God has foreknown us and chosen us from the very beginning. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he foreknew, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And I think Paul is commenting on this very teaching of Jesus. So it's beautiful because it tells us that if you're a Christian and a believer, God has foreknown you from the foundation of the earth and chose you to come to him. You're not an afterthought to God. 
It's fourthly beautiful because it means that our salvation is totally secure because our salvation depends upon the will of God and the will of Christ. God gives us to Christ. God keeps us so that we will not perish or be lost and God will raise us on the last day. It's his work. We're totally secure in it if we're Christians. Fifthly, this teaching means that we can pray for God to change human hearts. You know, in the alternative interpretation of this passage, which says ultimately people, because, people come to Christ because of themselves, not because of God, that undercuts any confidence or ability to pray to God, to say, God, change this person's heart and save them. We can pray because we now know God has the ability to change hearts. And that's an awesome thing. Six, this teaching recognizes and praises the justice of God in judicially hardening sinners. And I I, I include this in why this is a beautiful thing, because I think without this interpretation, it seems like in the other interpretations, the idea that God judicially hardens sinners and gives them over isn't really that um, received or it's not seen as a very beautiful thing. But here in this teaching, we see God in his justice is able to do that, and it's not unrighteous. It's actually okay for him to do that, and it's good. Unbelief is not only a tragedy, and it is a tragedy, but it is also a righteous judgment from God. When a person doesn't believe in Christ, they are responsible for their own rebellion. They have rejected the goodness of God. He said to them, I've I've loved you, I've provided for you, I've given to you the way of salvation, and you're rejecting it. And so God, this teaching recognizes it's not an ugly thing for God to give them over. In fact, that should put the fear of God into our hearts, right? If you're not a Christian, stop putting off believing in Jesus. You're responsible for your unbelief, and God could give you over to that unbelief indefinitely. And lastly, I think this teaching is beautiful because it means that God gets all of the glory. Salvation is truly from the Lord. And when all is said and done, when we are forever with the Lord praising him, we will say blessing and honor and glory and power and wisdom and all of it goes to God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb because ultimately God is the reason why we are saved and not ourselves. So this is what I believe Jesus has taught. I am compelled to believe this by scripture, but I also think it's a beautiful teaching. You do not have to believe like I do. In fact, I, again, I invite you, if you disagree, please let me know, and please teach me why I am mistaken. There's so much more to say, and there are many questions this raises, and I can't answer them right now. But just understand, there's more to say. And I ask you to ask yourself, Not how do you feel about this, but what do the scriptures say? Please stand with me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us and teach us through your Holy Spirit and lead us into all truth. And again, Lord, we thank you that it is the truth that sets us free. Even when the truth is hard, it is ultimately the truth that sets us free. And I pray for each one of us that, Lord, we would 
find joy in the truth and not joy in error. And thank you that, Lord, you are glorious and beautiful and good in all of your ways, no matter what you do. You are right and true and perfect. It's always us who are corrupt and perverse, Lord, not you. So, Lord, teach us, um, guide us, let us ask questions and learn. And, Father, in all of this, we ask that, that you truly would be glorified through the truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.